so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. We're glad you've joined us this week as we hear about the Bible's unashamed promotion of diversity in the kingdom of God. But the gospel frees us to joyfully admit our sins. The gospel frees us to face ugly things about ourselves. The gospel frees us to tell the truth about our hearts and what's lurking in our hearts, even when, especially when, what's lurking there is unpleasant. Because that's when we find help. The theme of diversity is undeniable in the Bible. God never intended for us to be a monolithic people. The Bidi Anyabwile addressed this issue in his message, The Image of God and Racial Reconciliation, A Biblical Theology of Kingdom Diversity. We hope this message will encourage you to promote and celebrate diversity in your church. Listen, I want to get right into our subject for tonight, but before I do, this is a conference on racial reconciliation, and um, though it's not racial in nature, I need to be reconciled with someone, um, with Dr. Russ Moore. He's never invited me to Nashville to speak when my favorite football team, the Tennessee Titans, have been playing. (laughs) Instead, he invites me to speak during March Madness (laughs) on the night when NC State, my alumni team, is playing in the Sweet 16. I just, <laughs> Russ and I got issues, man. We're going to work them out later. But it's, it's great to be here. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Russ, for the opportunity um, to address you on so important a theme. And um, in all seriousness, we want to give God, I think, thanks and praise for Dr. Moore's leadership at ERLC, for the courage it takes to put together an event like this, uh, and invest the kind of resources it takes to gather um, such a, a, a wonderful group of people to help God's church think about these sets of issues. So I give God praise for you, brother, and I'm thankful for your leadership. Amen. Amen. The image of God in racial reconciliation. The image of God and racial reconciliation. That's what I've been asked to address tonight. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you're new to your Bibles, uh, Genesis 1 is the very first page of your Bible. When I say chapter 1, I mean the big number. And when I say the verse number, so we're going to be looking beginning at verse 26 and 27, I mean the small number in your Bibles. And so it's no shame to be new to the Bible Uh, We're glad you're here and glad you're thinking with us about these things, and we want you to be able to follow along. As we think about this theme, uh, earlier today, Trillia Newbell said that uh, if we're going to do the work of racial reconciliation, we need a robust doctrine 
of the image of God. And I don't think it could have been better stated. And I don't think I'm worthy to the task, but that's part of what I want to try to do in this talk, is to give us a, perhaps a more fuller understanding of this biblical idea and to have that idea shape how we think about racial reconciliation, how we pursue this thing that we have all been thinking about over the last couple of days. And as we have our time together tonight, I want to hang our thoughts on kind of four four things, four phases of this. This is kind of theological baseball. Uh, first point is we want to think about the original creation and think about what it means that we are made in God's image. Secondly, we want to think about the distorted reflection, what what it means for sin to have entered the world and how that affects the way in which we bear God's image and likeness and how that affects racial reconciliation. And thirdly, we want to think about our recreation in the image of God if we're Christians and how the redemption of Christ has much to say, again, about how we pursue Uh, racial reconciliation. And finally, we want to think about our final bearing of the image. We want to think about glorification and how we will reflect the likeness of God perfectly. Let's pray real quickly. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to think of such lofty matters. We pray, O Lord, that in ways greater than we can comprehend, ways greater than the preacher can plan, you would leave us with a sense of awe of yourself. And we might look at each other with fresh wonder that you have made such exquisite creatures. And you have, O Lord, passed along to them something of your likeness and your image. Help us to grasp that more deeply, we pray. And help us to live in light of that truth. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with this original creation. The classic text for this is, again, going to be Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27, and this is what we read in God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there's significant theological discussion about what is precisely meant by humanity being made in God's image. Some people say it's, it's best defined by this reference to dominion here in verse 26. Some others point to the communicable attributes of God, those characteristics of God which humanity shares in some measure with him. And others argue for a more specific idea like the capacity to love. Now, I just, I want to punt on answering that question just for a little while, what I think it means, what the scripture teaches us about what it means to bear the image and likeness of God. Instead, right now, I just want to point out just a few basic things from this text. First of all, it is being made in the image and likeness of God that sets us apart from the rest of creation that distinguishes us from all of the rest of God's handiwork. We're the only image bearers of God in all of his creation. That means, beloved, we are priceless and irreplaceable. Look at your neighbor. Don't say anything to them. 
you're beholding a creature that is by God's design a reflection of his image and likeness. And this applies to all humanity. Male and female, brown skin, pink skin, tan skin, that, that every human being you have seen ever in all of your life has the imprimatur of God stamped upon them. This applies to both men and women, the two genders specified in this text. And this also lets us know that gender is not merely a social construct that some people tell us. It's a divine construct that is connected with the image bearing of God. Look again at your neighbor. Longer this time. You're looking at an image bearer of God. And perhaps this is a good place to quote the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis who writes, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We, we must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, which is between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. We have never met mere Mortals. Every person we have ever looked upon, smiled at, frowned at, greeted, encouraged, insulted, slandered, touched, is a person bearing the marks of divine likeness and the Imago Dei. So racial reconciliation must begin with our learning the habit of seeing each other as together made in the image of God and therefore possessing inestimable unfathomable dignity and worth and preciousness. How do we do that when we see people all the time and the experience of seeing them is so commonplace? You you know the old quip, familiarity breeds contempt. That's nothing like being around a bunch of whole people that make you feel a, a little contemptuous. You know, people get on your nerve, right? Even the people you live with. Get on your nerves sometimes. So how do we develop this habit of seeing one another and recognizing in one another this exquisite dignity? Well, I think it's going to require skill. And like all skill, it's going to require practice, really hard practice. It's going to require the renewing of our minds, especially with regard to racial identity. So let me illustrate it this way. Picture yourself walking into your cafeteria. It could be the very nice cafeteria here at the Southern Baptist Convention. It could be the cafeteria in the workplace or your school. And you walk into the room and you see two tables. And one table is full of persons who are your own sort of ethnic background. Another table is full of persons who are all alike but are from a different 
ethnic background. Now, now what happens when you walk into that room? You, you walk into that room and at the speed of thought, you size the room up, don't you? You look over there and you see those persons who are ethnic others and, and the mind, again, without sort of thinking about it, just automatically begin to process and you think something like this, not like me. And not only that, you begin to think something like this, therefore nothing in common. And then you say, not like me, therefore nothing in common, therefore not safe. Not like me, nothing in common, not safe, therefore not going to have a good time with them. Therefore, let me go somewhere else. And then on the other side of the room, your mind does the opposite calculus. You look out, you see people who share, for example, your own skin tone, and you say, oh, like me. Like me, therefore a lot in common. Like me, therefore, a lot in common, and so therefore safe. Like me, and therefore, a lot in common, and therefore safe, and I should go over there and have a good time. The mind is a relentless stereotyper, and and that's what's happening there. And in a fallen world, what's happening there is that stereotyping and that processing and that, that making of those attributes drive you away from the fundamental recognition that everybody you just looked at in that room is like you, sharing in the image of God. And like you have the greatest thing in common as God's image bearers. And like you, therefore, share some of the most fundamental realities of life. If we're going to rightly appreciate and practically embrace our common creation in the image of God, then we we, we need a sure foundation. We need a, a practice and a habit of breaking the ways in which our mind sort of automatically computes along along stereotypes and developing fresh ways of thinking about the people that we look at. But now as we do that, there's something that we have to contend with on the way to embracing this common creation. And it brings us to our second point. We're going to have to contend with the way in which that image has been uh, distorted by the fall. The world we now inhabit is not the world as God first made it. This world now suffers the corruption of sin. So if you turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 3, just two chapters later, you you will know this account if you're familiar with the Bibles. the, the, The serpent tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve, literal historical figures. And, and, and Adam and Eve um, sin against God. They transgress his command, and they subject the entire creation to the effects of sin. In their disobedience God uh, to God, Adam and Eve, um, they plunge man into, Genesis 3.22, the knowledge of good and evil. A knowledge that was originally beyond the boundaries of proper human life. It's not good for us to know everything. God had declared that this was a, there was a boundary here. They transgressed that boundary and we now know evil because our first parents transgressed God's command. And that knowledge of good and evil is a consequence of that sin that sent the world spiraling into chaos. So Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel, his brother. Fratricide is the result of the knowledge of good and evil. And in just a few generations, a, a man named Lamech, we, we find Genesis 4 verse 19, is, is participating in polygamy. 
And in Genesis 4, verse 24, he is, he is committing himself to revenge and mass murder. Such is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Until we come to Genesis 6 and God looks down on humanity and the thoughts of their heart, always wicked before him. God says, you know what? I'm going to start over. Since the flood and Noah's death judges all of humanity and saves only eight souls, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And after the flood, this is what we notice. We, we see all of this chaos. We see all of this sin. And the natural question is, well, is this the image of God? Is this the likeness of God? What, what, what's happened here with the image bearers? What's happened here with those who have had the imprimatur of God stamped upon them in, in some ineffable way? What are we to think? In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God's called Noah and his sons out of the ark. He's called them uh, back into the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And then he says this in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, and it gives a rationale. For God made man in his own image. You see it there? God gives here a warrant for capital punishment. And the basis for that is the protection of the dignity and the reality that we are still image bearers of God, fallen and sinful though we be. For God made man in his own image. The image isn't completely lost, but it is really distorted. The forces of sin in the world have been unleashed with, with a, ve a vehement desire to distort and extinguish that image. We live in a world bent on erasing the remembrance and the reflection of God, its creator. Here's the point. This means that when we come to racial reconciliation in the image of God, we not only have to take seriously what it means to be made in the image of God, we also have to take seriously the seriousness of sin. This work can't be done by practical Pelagians. It can't be done by people who deny original sin and people who deny the depth of human depravity. If we don't take sin seriously, we'll be tempted to think that racism, racial animosity, prejudice, bigotry are either A, justifiable in some measure, or B, eradicable by education alone. That's foolishness. You can't educate people out of racism. You can't educate people out of racial hatred and animosity. And this is why this kind of practical Pelagian approach to racial reconciliation ends with so many people exhausted and frustrated. Because they're trying to do work in their own strength and according to their own wisdom. They misdiagnose how deep the problem is, and so they use the wrong tools to address it. Mankind, though made in God's image, is corrupted at the root of his being by sin. So we need a solution to racial strife that can, in fact, reach the root of man's being. We need deep cleansing work. Some of you are my age and older, and you remember the television commercial, Calgon, right? That, that soap. 
and Calgon takes your troubles away. You soak in this bath and, and that soap takes, well, we need something stronger than Calgon. Something that reaches the root of the human soul and removes this sin, this stain of sin. And beloved, the persons who ought to be most able to tell the truth about our sin, about the sin of humanity, are the people who believe this book and believe this gospel. It's striking to me that there are a good number of Christians who on this conversation kind of pull down the blinds, they shutter up their, they shutter up their souls, they go inside and turn off the lights and they don't want to have any, any conversation about this. For fear of being discovered to be a sinner in this way. For, for fear that they might expose themselves for having some kind of sinful racial thought. For fear that they might discover that in fact, yes, that, that thing you believe, that thing you just said, that, that is racist. That's, that's the third rail in our culture right now. Uh, to be called racist is something that, that people hate. They, they recoil at it. And in one sense, that's a, that's a sign of God's grace to us over the last 50 years because 50 or 60 years ago, it was a respectable thing. That it's moved so rapidly now to be a, a despised thing is wonderful. But along the way, I think many Christians have, have, have been so afraid of the label and so afraid of the discussion and so afraid of the implications that, that they don't, they don't even want to have the conversation. But the gospel frees us to joyfully admit our sins. The gospel frees us to face ugly things about ourselves. The gospel frees us to tell the truth about our hearts and what's lurking in our hearts, even when, especially when, what's lurking there is unpleasant. Because that's when we find help. The psalmist could write and say that when he refused to confess his sins, his bones, his bones groaned. He was in such aching, such pain, and such agony of soul. But when he confessed these things, oh, that's when he found freedom. That's when he found relief. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I look at so much of the church world and she seems bottled up and frustrated and, and impotent. And I think a large reason for that is she's simply unable to confess her sins in this area. But confession would bring us freedom. Confession would bring us a cleansing. Confessing would be a blessing in this fight for racial reconciliation. I mean, what's the alternative? To pretend that these are not problems in our society? To pretend that we are not affected by these things? To pretend that they no longer exist, that they no longer, they no longer matter? Listen, beloved, if, if racism does not exist, it will be the first sin produced by default that was completely cured apart from the gospel. If racism does not exist, it will be the only form of alienation from the fall to have vanished in the course of human history. We're only practicing self-deception. If we think racism has vanished, or we think it's just vanished from our hearts. No, the potential for it lurks in every heart. Even if we have experienced a large measure of victory over it. We may be victorious over this issue and yet not free from it. 
And that's why we must be vigilant. That's why we must set a guard over our hearts and our minds and our mouths. That's why we must think of removing racist thinking and racialized thinking even as a major part of renewing our minds and the sanctification of discipleship. If we don't, we're going to continue to be, as a Christian church, ill-equipped for this work of reconciliation, and we're going to continue to find ourselves surprised and even upset and divided when racism, once again, raises its ugly head in places and times we least expect. You see, the image of God is assaulted by sin and sinners. One such sin is racism. So we must take seriously the reality and the deceitfulness of sin and protect God's image in one another if we want to see progress in racial reconciliation. So what must we confess? Corporately and personally. And do we believe in the grace of the gospel enough to confess our particular sins particularly? Which brings us to our third thing. We were not only created in the image of God, and as the story unfolds, that image was distorted, but that's not the end of the story. We're told that we are recreated in this image if we are in Christ. I love the words of Luther's hymn. You will know these words. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. But then Luther goes on to write something else. He says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Why? Why do we not tremble in the face of satanic assault against the image of God and against the people of God? Well, Luther says it this way. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Do we think that applies to racial reconciliation? That Christ must win the battle? It's precisely what he has done in the cross. It's precisely what the Bible tells us that the cross has achieved for us. He himself has become our peace. Is the, is the sentence in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He has reconciled us to God and to one another in his body on the tree. And I love the words of, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has reconciled us to God in his body, through the cross, and in the process, Ephesians 2.16 tells us he has killed the hostility that once divided Jew and Gentile. And not only Jew and Gentile, but once divided Gentile and Gentile. He has put it to death. The cross becomes a spear thrust through the heart of racial animosity and racial division. But there's more. How does the killing of this hostility relate to the image of God 
And how does it work out in our reconciliation? Well, I think the answer is found in a couple chapters later in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me in Ephesians 4 and observe with me the connection between racial reconciliation and the image of God. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Paul writes there to the church and writes to us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, we cannot in any way live like unbelievers anymore, period. We must have our minds renewed to live differently. Why? Verse 18, the Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding. Notice now the next word, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. But now notice in verse 19, that alienation has been defeated in Christ. They they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, and here's the victory. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, notice now, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you see the connection? We have been saved from the old way of life with its corruption and its alienation. Now we must learn Christ and live in a manner worthy of our calling. That means we must pursue sanctification. We must take off the old man and we must put on the new man. And notice that new man created after the likeness of God. So sanctification is the recreation of the likeness of God in the lives of God's people. When the fall in sin, or excuse me, what the fall in sin distorted, Christ in sanctification restores. And here we see the New Testament commentary on what the, what the Old Testament means by the image of God. It's true righteousness and holiness. Christ has become our righteousness. He has become our holiness. And as we put on Christ, we are renewed in the image and likeness of God. What was lost in the fall is regained in Christ. There's a parallel passage in Colossians 3 that makes this connection even clearer and tells us a little more about um, what it means to embrace the likeness and image of God. Look with me in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. There the Apostle Paul writes these words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's the old man, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8 gives us the contrast, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And 
Notice, beloved, all of those things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, can be expressed in our racial discord, in our racial prejudice, can't they? Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then Paul gives us the specific implication of this renewal in the image of the creator. Verse 11, here in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see? Christ saved us from earthly unbelief. Now in Christ, we are called to put away those old things which once divided us. And because we have already put on the, the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God, our creator, we're to live a new life. And the outworking of that new life, that renewal of knowledge, that regaining, that restoring to the image of God, is this trans-ethnic, trans-cultural, trans religious, trans-economic unity we have in Christ. These are realities we are meant to live out. These are realities that we are to discover more fully as we progress in our conformity to the image and likeness of God. You cannot be a Christian renewed in the image of God and be indifferent to or opposed to Reconciliation in the body of Christ. The reconciliation flows necessarily from the saving and sanctifying work of the Lord. You can't break those two things apart without breaking the cross. You can't break those two things apart without opposing the Spirit's ongoing work in the church. We can't break those two things apart without breaking ourselves. My good friend Jarvis Jarvis Williams likes to put it this way. Reconciliation, racial reconciliation, is not an implication of the cross. It is the work of the cross. This is not something that merely flows out of the cross as a secondary or tertiary application. This is what the cross produces. So central is it to the work of Christ, who is made in himself one new man. So let me ask you this question by way of application. Do you have a place under the banner of Christian discipleship for renewing your mind on racial issues? Is that mind renewal in your mind central to what it means to be a Christian and to be a follower of Christ? If we don't, then we are liable to be opposing the cross work of Christ and the unifying work of the Spirit. And this is serious. I ask this question because you can tell me if I'm wrong later, if you have a different view of this. But I ask this question because I think one of the most underdeveloped areas of Christian discipleship in the United States is on this very issue. How to think about ourselves biblically. How to, how to think about our identities biblically and how to sort of push forward and work out the reconciliation that Christ has achieved for us. We can be 
Christians. We can be cradle Christians. We, we can be born into a Christian family. We can be converted at a very young age, five, six, seven, and we can live a long, ripe life to 95 or 99 and die and meet Christ. And in that entire span of our lives, we can never, we, we, it's possible that we could never have had someone sit down with us and systematically help us think about our new identity in Christ as it relates to racial issues and racial reconciliation. That's a problem. Particularly in a country and in a church whose greatest sin has been racism. And it's it's complicitness in the racial ugliness of this country. We don't have Sunday school curriculum for teaching people how to rethink their identities in Christ. There are no popular Bible studies that address it that I can think of. There are no accountability questions asked when we get together with our accountability partner. So in that list of 10 questions that we use, there's no questionnaire that says, hey, look here, brother, have you, have you had any racist thoughts this week? Have, have you this week been thinking of your own identity in ways that look a whole lot like the old man rather than a new man that Christ has created? It's not a part of our discourse. It's not a part of our discipleship. And so we're weak when the Fergusons erupt around us. We're weak when we're watching Eric Garner choke to death on a city sidewalk. We, we, we feel incompetent when we see a Tamir Rice shot in Cleveland. We, we don't know quite what to say or, or, or what to do when the, when the DOJ reports come out, whether it's telling us that hands up, don't shoot isn't true, or whether it's telling us that, man, this police department is shot through with racist practice and thinking. We're immobilized because we're not disciples. Because we, we don't have this as a category in what it means to mature as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. I want to encourage us to put that on our agenda. Because we're not doing the Christian life well if we're not being sanctified in our thinking about our own identities and racial reconciliation. Let me move us to the final thing. Our final bearing of this image. The Bible word for that is glorification. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, John writes these marvelous words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I I love this text. I pray the Lord writes it on every heart. Put it on a note card. Put it on your refrigerator. Memorize it. Listen, listen to what God tells us in his word. He says, first of all, What manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God? And notice he's he's, he's sort of taken up with the idea that the reader understands this is not merely what we are called, but he says, this is what we are. It's a fact. Write it down. Make it plain. This is your divinely written biography. You are 
Christian, a child of God. It's a fact. It's a present reality. And it gets better. We don't know what we will be, but we know this. When we see him, we shall be like him. And this is the glorious thing. The very act of seeing Christ glorified coming for his bride. That's when Philippians 1.6 is finished. You remember Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. On the day of Christ Jesus, when we are made to see Christ with our very own eyes, the very act of seeing Christ will transform us into the likeness of Christ. And the image we bear now that's clouded and shrouded, we will bear perfectly as we were glorified together with Christ. What manner of love is this? That we should have been made in God's image. And then distorted that image. And then redeemed by Christ his son. The, the very, the writer of Hebrews tells us who is the, the very exact representation of God. That we should be redeemed by him and conformed to his likeness and being renewed in that image right now. And then on the day when he comes, we shall see him and that work of our glorification will be instantly completed. As we behold him and beholding him become like him. If we take seriously the doctrine of the image of God and our being made in his likeness, not just in creation, but also in the eschaton, in the coming kingdom, we will long for that, for that likeness to be ours and the value and the dignity it confers to be shared with all other image bearers whom we see. Racial reconciliation rests upon this basis. You have never seen a mere mortal. Embrace that. Live from that. Let's pray together. Father, we long for that day in Revelation 7. When that great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages will stand before your throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And we will, as one people, cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We long for that day when all the angels will stand around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they will fall on their faces before the throne and they will worship you and say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When all of the heavenly beings will share in your glory, will bask in your splendor and the redeemed will bring forth the reflection of your image and your likeness in, 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 in great perfection. Hasten that day. And until then, oh Lord, we pray that you would reconcile your church. We pray, oh Lord, that you would put to death the hostility, not just as a fact of the gospel, but as a living experience of the church. And that we would be able to live, oh Lord, as one new humanity, embracing our new identity in Christ and being renewed in true righteousness and holiness and knowledge of God. Do this, O Lord, more fully, that the world might know, O Lord, that you are God and that you redeem. 
We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit ERLC.com to subscribe and find the most up-to-date episodes. And join us next week as we hear about the importance of being involved in the pro-life movement.